Hi, I'm Robert Cathern, and welcome to the show. This time on the podcast, I got my friend Matt Love to join me. Matt is a cinematographer. He is also a humanitarian who works in South America, and just a really great guy to hang out with. Uh, I've learned a lot working with him on a number of different sets, and he's got some great stories. So I don't want to really drag this intro out. So enjoy. Yeah, we are not talking about Suicide Squad nor any Batman films. Why did you start with that? Oh, bing, bang, boom. <laughs> oh, just... okay, okay. I understand. Because, yeah. there you go. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, you know, these uh, these were a gift from my sister. One of the problems with being a Batman fan is that everyone on holidays and birthdays just gives you Batman paraphernalia. Batman stuff. So I, I have these these Joker coasters. No, we don't have to talk about Suicide Well, I didn't even see Suicide Squad. Well, oh, yeah, that's probably okay. I saw it on a plane. It's one of those movies, you know, when we get on a, you get on a plane and you watch a really good movie and you get frustrated or upset when, you know, the captain comes on and interrupts it or you've got 10 minutes left and they turn the thing off because you're landing. So I don't like to watch good, (laughs) I don't like to watch good movies on planes. So I'll, uh. We'll get on a plane, and if I don't have work to do, I'll, I'll look at the list of movies that's available and say, okay, what would I not care about having interrupted? So I catch movies like Suicide Squad. Oh, Matt, where were you flying from? When we watched Suicide, when I saw Suicide Squad? Uh, I think when we, I think when I saw that, we were coming from, um, we're coming back from, from Honduras. Was that this summer? Yeah. Okay. I was in... Um, it was June. It was the uh, second half of June. You've had a busy summer, haven't you? I have. <laughs> I always have a busy summer. <laughs> what are you talking about? You, you've had you had a busy summer. Everybody. Oh man, no, we're film well, school students. Yeah, I know. It's uh, well, first of all, how about you uh, introduce yourself, or I'll introduce you. I'm, I'm sitting here with Matt Love, a uh, student of Ohio University's MFA film program. He's about a year, about a year ahead of me in the program. Uh, exactly. That's because you're uh, catching up. That's all. Yeah, it's uh, well, you know, if I'd only gotten accepted, the first two times I applied, maybe uh, <laughs> I might have been ahead of you. That would have been weird. I don't think that would have worked out very well. But yeah, the uh, starting the summer with departure feature film mm-hmm. was was pretty brutal. I gotta say. Well, it. <clears throat> I mean, you have to look at what we were coming off of too. I mean, you're all of the second year films, many of which you were crewing on mm-hmm. uh, through through March and April is just is just a sprint and at the same time you were prepping your first year film to to be screened and there's all that pressure for your your review and you end at that finish line absolutely exhausted, needing to take a week off. And what did we do? Started, started, <laughs> started to shoot a feature. Was it unique this past year that all the second year films were filmed seemingly within a month of each other? No, no. I think that's par for the course because uh, what happens is, you know, I, Ohio University is, is very much a, a writer's um, program, or at least I, I feel that it's that way. So there's this emphasis putting on uh, emphasis placed on on getting the story right to begin with. So uh, 
when you're working with Rafal, and Rafal is amazing, and he will he will put the time in to to help you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, and so things just kind of get pushed down the mm-hmm. down the down the path. So with everyone so focused on getting their story right, all that production just gets crunched into the end. Yeah, and you didn't make a film. Personally, no, no, I didn't. Why ever not? Why ever not? <laughs> Um, so what you mean is I didn't write a film or direct a film. Did you have that plan just coming right into the year? You're like, I'm not doing this again. No, you know what? Coming into the year, I, I worked over the summer with uh, Corey Howell, uh, an amazing writer. He and I kind of co-developed a, uh, a script. So I was very much involved in the concept side of things. But the writing, uh, Corey was handling and I think we had a, I think we had a, a great idea and a great um, concept building. But as the year, you know, as the semester started, uh, and as we were starting to polish that, uh, I started getting asked to DP more and more films, and realized that okay, I, I you know, I have an opportunity to be a cinematographer on a, a number of films, or I'm going to have to forego that opportunity in order to be able to make my piece mm-hmm. and between those two faced with that faced with uh that choice i chose the cinematographer route that's where my heart is that's where my passion is um someday i, I i'd be open to making that film that Corey and i came up with because i think it was kind of fun yeah but um did you come into we'll this see. program knowing that you wanted to be a cinematographer? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, there was never any doubt. No, no, no. I'm I'm awful. I'm a gearhead. <laughs> I'm a gearhead through and through. So, you know, any excuse. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I had trouble adjusting to the whole discussion of equipment because I'm not a gearhead at all. Like, I have the ideas. I know what I want to make. I know how I want things to be framed. I know what I want the words to be, but you, you put a, a bunch of cameras in front of me. I'm like, what? How would I just? The reason I'm not going to be a DP is because I want to pass that off to you, people like you. I can say, okay, Matt, shoot my film for me, please, so I don't have to worry about the camera. But I also have very strong ideas about light and and framing and camera movement. But my brain sort of stops at, at wanting to actually master that craft. So even now, taking cinematography class, I'm doing it almost entirely so I can speak the language to a DP. Speaking the language is important. And, you know, I I am just incredibly happy that there are people exactly like you in this world that can um, give people like me work. Because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. My, my favorite director to work with is the director who does have a strong vision uh, for for what they want. Because there's uh, then you get that coherency, you get that consistency in the in the art and in in the piece, and I get to focus on how to bend the the realities of the the environment and the tools to to that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've been working on, I mean, you're taking cinematography class to be able to to uh, to understand the lingo or to be able to speak that language. And, and I've been studying all of the art artistic side of side of things to be able to be part of that conceptual conversation, you know, to, 
to be able to offer suggestions to directors and say, well, you could do it like this. You know, we could cover this scene like this. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other vocabulary. So would you say that you have a style? If, if you'd like to just attach your know-how to someone else's vision or... or you know, that's, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the that's one of the things that uh, I always thought was, um, you know, having a uh, a particular vision or style. I, <laughs> I always thought that was kind of crazy, but now I see um, the reality of of how that works. And no, I, I I don't think I do yet. I think I'm still working to find that. The, one of the great things about taking the path that I did last year was I got to work with um, directors who had very distinctly different visions mm-hmm. and I started to get to see those those differences and the the stark variety um, so I think I think I'm a good ways off from having a I think I'm a good ways off from having a look yet. Right, like like you're not like Deacons. Uh, where... No, 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 <laughs> never. Oh gosh, oh, I, I'd like to. You know, I'd like to get to that place. I think I have a lot of work ahead of me. Well, I think anyone who wants to be Deacons has a lot of work ahead. of Oh me. no, 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 no. I mean, oh, <laughs> I just meant having. Style. Yeah, oh, okay. I just meant having my own style or look. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you mean another thing too is that you probably the more you work on, you just have a sort of bag of tricks you pull out when you're faced with a problem right isn't that kind of i mean i I don't know if this is unique to john valetta but the amount of opal diffusion we used on departure was just it got to the point where i I was just grabbing opal along just because i knew we were going to use it no matter what so i mean that might not be a feature of every director of photography but no but uh in doing you know, in, in further research and reading and, and looking at other cinematographers, I do think diffusion is, you know, some might prefer Hampshire or Hanover and some might prefer Opal, but I think diffusion just in general is is a um, is a trick, so to speak, that is used by an awful lot uh, of cinematographers. We haven't been exposed to it an awful lot because we never had access to it. Or it's not the budget. Exactly. And what's really funny about working on that feature, um, well, for for the listeners, um, all five of them, uh, Departure is a student film directed by four thesis students, uh, written and directed by those four students, shot in and around Athens, Ohio. And they hired a DP from Los Angeles who was a graduate of the program and got some talent from New York and all over the place as far as you know actors are concerned and then had a pretty much entirely volunteer college graduate school film crew and I'll tell you what all that cinematography reading we had to do did not really make sense to me until I was on set with you and Matthew actually gelling windows actually positioning the 1Ks actually holding up bounce cards and using diffusion. So I came into cinematography class this year with that quiz, the opening quiz, and and was fine because it all, it clicked for me. It only clicked with the actual act of doing it. So that was really cool. But I remember you telling me last, uh, well, this past summer, it seems like 10 years ago that we worked <laughs> on that film. Uh, I remember you telling me that cinematography is not just about pretty pictures. No. Right? No. And what's really been fascinating me is when I got to work on Megan's film, uh, 
where you were you were first AC, right? Reunion, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that John Coy, the DP on that project, kept saying was we'd have a camera angle and we'd know what the scene was going to be, and then he would say, "Get me this lens, get me this lens, get me this lens," and he always seemed to be winging it. And that always threw me off. I'm like, wait, how do you know which lens to use? And he says, well, there are certain things, like if you're having an emotional beat or a close-up, you want this particular focal length. Um, if you're doing an establishing shot, if the camera's moving a lot, you want this focal length. And it, it's it's not quite making sense to me yet because my last film, we had one zoom lens. You know, it was 60 millimeter black and white, and we had a zoom lens. We didn't have any primes. Um, so a zoom lens is a variable you can zoom in. Prime lens is is fixed. So how do you decide what lens? I don't know. Maybe you can shed some light on this because I didn't <laughs> really get to pick John's brain. Um, how do you decide what lens to use for a particular like emotional or narrative moment? Is that something you just on the day you figure it out, or do you have a plan going in where you're like, okay, this is how we need to achieve this? Oh no, it's it's definitely something that you as you start to work with. It's one of those things where you'll read like. Um, if it's not provided through the school, then you'll you'll find some resource where you you start to read about you know lens selection, lens choice, uh, actually specifically focal length choice, and there are some generally um, held beliefs about the way lenses work. Like wide angle lenses tend to, or comedic pieces tend to be more wide angle, drama pieces tend to be more telephoto, these kind of things. And you can get into the whys, but then you start to actually it, it's exactly the same as what you did last year in cinematography versus, you know, departure. When you start to use that uh, and see it uh, on set, then it's going to click. And if we want two characters to feel distant from one another or to if, if there's a if there's, you know, if there's space between them, then we use a wider angle lens to get the frame that we want because it's going to make those two characters feel farther apart. Those two subjects feel farther apart. If someone, if they're coming close together uh, or they're having an intimate moment, then we're going to want to move the camera back and go on a telephoto lens because it's going to compress that. Um, if you want someone who's just coming to a city who is experiencing the vastness of their surroundings and, and everything and they feel you know, small within that space, a wide angle lens is going to, you know, accentuate that because, um, you know, the proportions of, of their body size versus the surrounding buildings. If they're at home, then a longer lens is going to make them feel more like they belong in that space. Um, you, and we could, we could go for, we could go for hours on, on, well, on focal length selection. Someone was trying to, I was talking to someone about, uh, a fight scene or mm -hmm. I can't remember what it was mm -hmm. but even in a fight scene no I, I was watching I was watching something with my little brother and he was asking me if they'd sped up the frame rate or okay. slow down the frame rate rather to make it look like it was faster and one of the problems I have with early Jet Li movies uh -huh. is that they speed it up and it's obvious that they're not obeying the laws of physics oh I was watching the 1938 Adventures of Robin Hood Okay. With Errol Flynn. Okay. All right. Now, in the fight scenes where they're fencing and there's a big melee going on, it's obvious that the film is sped up to make it look like they're moving yeah. quickly. Yeah. And then we watched another film where people were moving really quickly and my brother said, are they speeding up the film there? And I looked at it and I realized that they were using a longer focal length because it looked like their limbs were traveling through the frame faster. 
in some weird way. Like, it's I, now I may be completely wrong, and it's quite po- probable rather. But there was something about if you're in like a brawl, mm-hmm. like you've seen Daredevil, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're in like a brawl with a bunch of people coming around, in order to make it look like a punch is landing, you might not want the wide angle lens, Correct. right? Right, especially if it's coming towards the camera. Maybe even away from the camera. So um, earlier I mentioned compressing the scene. So, you know, a lot of times when you're throwing a punch, you'll put you'll put two characters farther apart from each other so that one can swing as hard as they want, but they're far enough apart that they're not going to land. They're not going to land that punch. So we need to make those two characters feel like they're closer together than they really are. Mm-hmm. So if they're stacked one in front of the other, a longer a longer focal length will do that. Got it. Okay. It will make those two characters feel closer together so that when they swing and miss, it's going to look like that punch was closer to connecting. Okay. But as you mentioned movement. If you take a, a, a slider, you know, one of these little things that you put the camera on and, and it, it just slides sideways, you know, to add a subtle movement to the shot that you're that you're filming in in our equipment room we have a one that's six foot long that is the dana Do we dolly. really the, oh, dana the, dolly. Dana dolly. Okay, yep, yeah, yeah. the dana dolly so the little slider ones are like you know two feet long or three feet long one of the tricks you can use is in and this this would be a fun experiment for cinematography class or you for you to do on your own is to take a camera and put it you know for example on that on that dana dolly put Oh, you know, a wide angle lens on there, put an 18 or a 21 on there and slide it from one end of that six foot rail to the other and see what it looks like in terms of movement. It's going to feel like the camera's moving 100 feet. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but you get the point. Uh, And you take that exact same position and you put a 100 millimeter lens on there, a 135 millimeter lens on there, and you move that same six feet and it looks like the camera moved six inches. It just, it, it wide angle lenses uh, accentuate the the motion mm-hmm. of 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 what you're doing. That's one of the things I the only well the first time rather that I was aware of wide angle lenses was watching skate videos back in high school. Because if you're doing some huge trick or if you're following someone on a skateboard, they would get a wide angle lens. It was like a, a fisheye. They actually used fisheye lenses so they could get the entire frame in the shot. And it would make it, if it was coming towards the camera, it would look like they were flying. But it's, you know. Yeah. They, I mean, they are moving pretty quickly, but not like dangerous where you can't get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. You know what's weird about those little um, tracks? Mm-hmm. They were on, every, so I worked on two pilots this mm-hmm. summer, two reality show pilots, which I can't actually talk about the specifics. But there are these standards they have for reality TV home renovation shows. Okay. And one of them is they set up these GoPros. They'll set up like three GoPros, different parts of the house, and just let them run until the entire card is filled up. And then Poor they'll editors. Have, oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, there, there was a, a guy, uh, shout out to Ben Brimer, who's one of his biggest jobs is to just figure out how to do time lapses. So he does the, the codec for time lapses and makes them usable for editors. So they set up these GoPros. Another thing they have is if someone, if they're doing a like a painting scene or they're doing a drywall scene, they'll have a slider, and they will have it on a on a um, a motor, and it'll slowly they'll just slowly pan across, and it's like it's maybe four feet, maybe that big, and they just keep that in the back. 
and the kits these guys were using after working on departure which was like the biggest thing i've ever done right as far as filmmaking is concerned being on a reality show set where the sandbags are these tiny little like five pound bags they're not like 50 pound monsters like we were using they have these very basic um uh not scrims um silks yeah silks they have these basic like six by six silks and these very basic tripods that they would put up or light stands or whatever and that's where they'd have them over top of the talent when they were talking about what they were going to do okay on this house and then you'd have a guy come in and all he did was various shots of every room that was going to be renovated then you'd have to make sure he knew exactly where the camera was so when they were done the renovation he could do the exact same shots to give it to the editor to work with and as an intern I had to go through hours and hours of these kind of footage to find what was worth giving to the story writer. Yeah. And the, the, it was just fascinating because even on these sets, like the camera guys all came from a news background. Hmm. So it wasn't about like, let's get the angle right. Oh, I mean, it is about getting angle right, but it's about capturing the action. Right. More right. than it is about like, let's make this art if you will, but these guys were crouching down, jumping all over the place. It's like 95 degrees. Yeah, Colorado was really hot this summer. You know, and they're jumping all over the place. They're, wow. they're, they're doing tracking shots, following shots. They're just constantly jumping all over the place. Sound guys doing the exact same thing. Like they are, they don't look athletic. These guys are very athletic. I was really impressed. And and they all developed this relationship with the talent to where they're like, this one guy, um, Andy McDonald was uh, really fun to work with. He was making friends with the talent so that they would not feel self-conscious around the camera because he would get up in their faces. He'd be following them, be like, hey, what are you doing behind me? And so he was constantly encouraging them to just relax and he's cracking jokes with them. And I noticed by working with those people that the interpersonal relationship of a reality show is the only way you get that Chip and Joanna Gaines kind of thing. So you're not, so even the producer is pretty much the director of these shows. So the producer's coming in and setting the stage to allow the talent to be able to do what they do best and then find the story in there. And it was it was fascinating to watch because I was like falling asleep standing up because there wasn't a whole lot for me to do because the camera guys were so good. I'm like a PA on these sets and, wow. and I'm like, what can I do for it? They're like, you know, just hang out over here. <laughs> I'm like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> like the most work I had to do as a PA was a uh, carry like a case of water with us. And then on one uh, pilot I worked on, they handed me a still camera and I took stills for the Instagram page, which was actually kind of cool. That was actually a lot of fun, but yeah, it's reality TV. Okay. Shooting ratios. This is fascinating. Okay. Oh, no. What do you think the shooting ratio was on departure? <clears throat> shooting ratio on departure was probably, I don't know, 15 to 1, 20 okay. to 1. Now, what, okay, can you define shooting ratio for our listeners? So when I say that the shooting ratio was 15 to 1 or 20 to 1, that means probably for every minute of final film, we would have shot 15 to 20 minutes of, of footage. Okay. So if it's a 100-minute film, then there's 1,500 or 2,000 minutes of footage that was actually captured. I, I don't know that that's necessarily accurate that sounds about right it's probably close okay 
and then you get on like a major Hollywood film, the shooting ratio might be like 50 well, to one. Who knows? That, well, that depends. Yeah, that depends entirely on the director. Like David Fincher. Yeah. David Fincher probably has a little higher shooting ratio than a lot of directors. Guess what the shooting ratio for the average reality show is? I don't even want to. It's going to make my head hurt. A thousand. 100 to one. Oh, gosh. A hundred minutes of footage to find one to make it into the show. Well, that's the thing. There was one show that I, I really wish I could give you specifics right now. I can't. There was one show I worked on where the talent was incredibly entertaining. They were just funny. So every on-the-fly interview, they're cracking jokes. They're, like, making fun of each other. They're making fun of the project. They're, like, quoting movies. It was it was hysterical. Like, I didn't mind working on it because it was just so entertaining so I do this string out of where I would cut, you know, however many hours of footage down to what they could use for a 20 minute. It was a half hour show. So they had to do this all in like 22 minutes. And I'm looking at it and I went to my producer and I said, there's enough material here for an hour long show. <laughs> and she said, well, the order we got from the network is a half hour show. Now, if they do really well and they develop a following, we might be able to expand it to an hour show. But for right now, we need every shot to be killer. So it was it was crazy. So I do these string outs, hand them to a, to a writer. And the writers don't sit down with a pen and paper. They put together what they think the story of the episode is. So they're taking my footage, which is a very rough cut of usable footage, and they're putting it together to say, okay, this is the story thread for this. So this episode might be the story thread uh, could be, wow, there's asbestos everywhere. We got to figure this out. Another episode could be these people are very particular about the colors they want in the house. And so they they emphasize those parts of it. So then it goes from the writer to an editor. So the editor gets it after there's already been two passes on the material. Then they edit it and then they, you know, fine tune it. And then I'm telling you, the High Noon Entertainment was, was pretty crazy because they had a full-time color corrector, full-time sound sweetener, where all this guy did, Jim Boardman, Shout out to Jim. Amazing watching this guy work. Would, would make different microphones recorded in different times under different conditions sound like they were part of the same interview. It was phenomenal watching this guy work. It's, it's, it was, he was a wizard. But yeah, so reality TV, very different from what we did. Yeah. No, but that's, that's fascinating. So all of the hours and just little jump of, um, of of thought here, but all those hours that were put into to distill that rough footage down into something for the writers to work with so that they could, it reminds me, you, listening to you talk reminds me of those those magnets that you put on the refrigerator. You rearrange the, you, the words, the only words you have are the ones that are on the fridge. Right. You just have to rearrange them in to make something. It sounds like what you were describing them doing. But uh, that first pass... Watch, that's that's going to become automated. Well, and th- one of the things that I really learned about it, what, what it really taught me is that you do not get to be picky until you've done a couple drafts. Yeah. That works with writing and editing. Because one of my problems is I look at the footage, especially if it's your film, you designed it, you shot it, you wrote it. You jump to fine-tuning on the first pass, which is death. I had so much trouble working on my film, too. Because I kept, I wanted to make everything perfect on the first pass. And Tom says, Robert, broad strokes. Yes. Broad strokes. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So that didn't become internalized until I had to look at 
however many hours of footage they gave me at high noon and try to chop it up into something usable. I was like, oh, I can't fine tune this because that's not my job. My job is to make this, give some material to this editor over here. So then it became a lot easier. And then I started seeing certain cameraman styles on these oh. shows where I knew when they would pan to something. I knew when they would get, when they would hit focus. And so this, um, I can't remember the gentleman's name, working on this one show out in Pittsburgh, I think it was Vince, uh, I could tell when he was going to move a certain way. And then I was like, that is fascinating. So it's there are styles, even within something as simple as, simple a concept as home renovation. So do you think you think you could have looked at you could have looked at some footage and said, oh yeah, that Tom shot that or John shot that or whoever shot at that. At some point, yeah. It was getting to that point because some That's some fun. would frame with a, with a lot of lead room, some people would frame with the subject right in the center. Um, the way they did two shots would be different. If there was dialogue while they were working on something, it would be framed differently. It was it's really it's I have a lot of respect for the people that do reality TV because even if you don't watch reality TV or watch the what they call it unscripted, you know reality TV is like the Kardashians, but unscripted entertainment, the craft and the the amount of work hours involved to get one twenty minute episode out is is unbelievable. So it's many hours. staggering. And you know, I don't know if I want a career in that. <laughs> well, you know that's 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 okay because uh, we're probably moving on to something different. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. So, what did you do after departure? Uh, after departure, I think we took uh, all of a few days off before we headed off to Colombia. And what are you doing in Colombia? Uh, well, we went to Colombia, and that was kind of a that was a little different. We went to Colombia to capture footage and uh, photos for um, Child Hope, the the nonprofit that Carrie and I work with. So we went from departure, which I don't know what did we have twenty on the crew. Of departure mm -hmm. so I went from you know departure being a 20 person crew 20 plus person crew that had a, a Penske box truck full of filmmaking equipment and that didn't even include the camera just the stands and the lights and the sandbags sandbags <laughs> and, and more sandbags and more sandbags and all that stuff and and then it was okay you're going to go to uh, this this new location and you're going to have to do interviews and you're going to have to get, you know, capture, as our editing professor likes to say, actualities and uh, all this content and all this footage. Oh, yeah. And by the way, you can take what you can fit in two suitcases. And oh, you have to get your clothes in there, too. So so that was a little bit uh, that was a little bit different. But uh, we spent some time in Bogota. Uh, visited a couple schools, talked with some parents, met students and kids. So, so this, uh, what's the organization again? Uh, Child Hope, and it's an organization that operates throughout Latin America, and essentially it's a, uh, a sponsorship program that helps underprivileged kids get to go to school. Okay. So we come alongside uh, private schools that are operating in underprivileged areas of Latin America, and we say, hey, um, you guys are, are doing a good work. We'd like to help. And so we provide monthly um, scholarships for students to be able to attend, have their tuition covered, uh, poorer students. And we also provide things like teacher training or people will donate money to put in libraries or playgrounds or computer labs, this kind of thing, 
we do some teacher training and yeah uh, we're working with 300 schools across 21 countries wow and total student population is running right around a hundred thousand it's pretty cool that is pretty cool yeah so how did you uh what was your actual job this particular trip to columbia so carrie and i um before coming to film school oversaw the program in the dominican republic um where we had 16 schools um, spread across the country. And we were doing, you know, we were getting more and more involved in promoting that program through photography and, and video and shorts. And so it was recognized that, you know, the, the organization as a whole could use some more of that just in general. So we've been transitioning into more of a, a regional capacity where We'll go into a country. I mean, we understand the program inside out because we were country coordinators for um, those 16 schools for a number of years. And so we can come into a new community, meet the, the administration at the school, speak with them, and, and meet parents and kids and find, um, find ways to show the, the upside of a program like this so through photography kids in class kids doing art kids smiling kids in the street uh, in their school uniform this kind of thing talking with parents on camera and giving them a chance to share what it means for them to have um, a scholarship for their student uh, for their child uh, different things like that, talking with the teachers and hearing about the the difference it makes to have an organization come alongside and, and try to help equip them and, and make their job a little easier. So how long have you been working with this company, or organization rather? We started working with Child Hope back in 2006, wow. spring of 2006, so uh, a little over 11 years. Was there just a day in South America where you looked at Carrie, Carrie looked at you, and you both said, time for film school <laughs> no no there was uh, there were many days when Carrie looked at me and said you know we should go to film school and I said we don't need film school there's YouTube <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that but I gotta say there's something about a structured academic environment that really fosters growth I, I will say this um, and I, I think I can say this without getting anybody in too much trouble, but uh, I think uh, film school has yet to live up to Carrie's expectations and has far exceeded mine. That's interesting. So it's, you know, it's probably because she was expecting a whole lot and I wasn't. But uh, no, the, the, the wonderful thing about film school, remember I said I was a gearhead. So mm-hmm. film, film school has been what it's taken to, to beat me over the head and, and make me look at some of the other aspects and and to appreciate the significance and the importance of some of the other the other parts of what goes into making a compelling story mm-hmm. and your, your film got into the athens international film and video festival last year my or my, this year rather man yeah, I, I can't, my sense of time is so screwed up sure. being in graduate school everything well, feels like it was five years ago like that was like three months ago it was it was last school year where you can you know we can look at it that way. It okay, was spring right, well, spring two thousand seventeen. That's fair. 
it was yeah it was a uh, it was my film two which was a 16 millimeter black and white film um i think it was it was very uh cute and fun it was delightful it was yeah it made it into the uh into the kids section it was in with all of the animated cartoons was it with the cartoons really it I was missed that yeah day. yeah ah, i saw carrie's self-portrait because I went to the, um, I can't remember what that actual block was entitled. Yeah, I don't either. Was it like something about bodies and personalities, or I can't remember exactly what it was. All I can think of is the title of it for her. I mean, hers was called "This Is Me," I think. Right. But uh, that that would have been an appropriate title for the block of films. Yeah. So you did Crazy Cashews, mm-hmm. and you, of course, were the DP on that. Mm-hmm. Right, writer, director, all that kind of stuff. I, yeah, I didn't operate the camera. But uh, I did claim. Who's, who's your operator? Corey Howell. Okay. Very good operator. Yeah, he was operating on uh, Willett's film mm-hmm. in the fall. Yeah. I, this was this was something kind of weird, and this is where I first started kind of thinking about the actual role of the DP with the director, because on my film too, I had Bruno as my camera operator, and I told him what I wanted things to look like. Mm-hmm. And he made it happen. So who's the director of photography? Or is there one? Or is there just director and camera? That's how I did it in the credits. Because I didn't feel comfortable taking credit as being a DP. And I didn't want to slight Bruno's contribution because it was a significant contribution. So I just I just gave him camera. <laughs> so this was your, your film too? My film too, yeah. Who decided where all the lights went? I did. All right. Well, you probably credited it accordingly. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. It's it's well also because the crew is so small. I mean, Savannah was my producer slash AD slash angel from heaven, making sure everything went smoothly. My yeah, goodness. Yeah. She, she probably could have taken a couple more things onto her shoulders. Yeah. Exactly. I could have put like boss next to her name or or whatever. Yeah. That was a. Uh, yeah. So that screening's coming up very soon. Man. I don't know, dude. Okay, so so your your experience of film school has been broadening your perspective away from just being a gearhead. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like taking the screenwriting classes, taking editing and all that has helped you be a better DP? Has it contributed to your understanding of the the just the visual aspect of the medium? You know, editing is definitely uh, the art of editing, which I think you're taking yeah, this taking semester right now. Definitely. Definitely helped formulate the way that I look as thing, at things as a director of photography. Um, to a certain extent, a lesser extent, um, I wouldn't discredit film studies from influencing. You know, just, just the idea that the way that we point the camera, the way that we frame a shot can influence either consciously or subconsciously the way a viewer interprets that shot. Um, you know, I, you know, that... That might not be the most significant thing you're thinking of when you're on set, but it's definitely something to take into consideration. Uh, script writing, yeah, I don't know if script writing helped me <laughs> when it comes to being a TP. Um, maybe less so. Mm, okay. So you got this footage in Columbia, and you're interviewing parents, um, and then you just put that up on a website? Are you in charge of the website for this uh yeah, so Carrie, Carrie is responsible for uh, all of uh, this, the organization's social media efforts. So what we'll do is we'll create, typically these are, you know, 
anywhere from 60 second to four minute pieces that will get posted to, to Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever gotten in a firefight? Hmm. No, I have not. I've been close. I keep imagining like South American cartels or something just all around you while you're trying to give children a, a place to learn how to read and write. No, it's not, it's not I have, quite. I have a very romanticized view of what you do. It's not quite that dramatic. Although uh, I have um, one time we were in a we were in a box truck that was full of uh, food uh, that had been donated that we were working on taking to Paternales and we came upon I'm sorry Paternales Paternales it's a it's a little um, town on the border of the Dominican Republic in Haiti so it's a little border town and we were on our way there and uh, this this actually involves this story involves a camera so this will be fun and there's a, a tree across the road and it's on fire and there's tires burning and there's oh my people with you know, they didn't have pitchforks, but they had something, and it was it. Was, they were, they they did not seem happy, and we stopped and was talking with the um, Dominican, my Dominican counterpart, and he said, uh, he said, man, I don't know what we're gonna. Do. So the drive from Santo Domingo, the capital, to Pernales, it's like a six-hour drive. So this is not something. It's not a journey you embark on lightly and we were already three hours in so it's like ah are we going to turn around and come another day and uh i said well danielle we have to we have to drive around we have to find another route he said there is no other route kind of you know remote remote area it would have it would have taken more than three hours to go around this this protest so um credit to him he said to me Matt, do you have your camera with you? And I said, of course I do. And he said, do you have a microphone? And I said, well, yeah. So he said, okay. So we get out and we, um, you know, we start greeting people and making nice talk. And we ask who the, the leader is. Is this set with a backdrop of a burning tree and tires? You come out and you're smiling. You're like, hey, hi. Hey, hey, guys, what's going on? We're from up north. <laughs> and so we're we're we start talking we we find out who's who's running the show and we say you know it's 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 crazy what are you guys what's going on and we find out that the person who's responsible for the pumps that provide the water for the for the entire town um basically i don't know he he took the money and spent it on gambling debt i don't know but it was it was gone so there's no diesel fuel for the for the pump so these people had been without water for like three weeks or something crazy like that and really the only reason that they were without water for so long was just malfeasance it was just bad um management by this by this guy so they were unhappy and we said you know people need to hear about this we we should interview you on camera and give you give you a voice, and then you would probably be so grateful as to let us pass, and um, we could go about our way. This is what we're doing. This is so you know important that we need to get these food this food to these kids, and um, when we get back to the capital, we would we'd send this footage into 
you know, a news station so that they could hear about the injustice you you guys are are facing. And they 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 thought, yeah, that's a great idea. So I got the camera set up, and Danielle interviewed this guy with the microphone, and and um, then when it was all done, they they said, you know. For us to move the burning log and the tires and all this, oh, man, that's that's too much hassle. But don't worry. Just get back in your truck and follow this guy. And here's a guy in like a little 50cc moped. We said, okay. So we start following this guy and he takes us on a side road, which turns into a dirt, you know, a dirt road, which turns into, you know, two track. And before I know it, we're bouncing across uh, a field like of some crop. I don't know plantains or something Mm -hmm. and (laughs) wondering if they're just going to take us off into the into the the boondocks and and take our truck and nope we pop back out on the road and we're on our way wow so but i've never been in a never been in a firefight that's too bad so even though you're working in perhaps dangerous areas you've never felt like your life was threatened no or have you no and yeah, I don't. I don't. Recall. Did I ever tell you about that time I was in Egypt? No. So in Egypt, well, even if I, if you remember, I'll just tell the story anyway. The thing about Egypt is that an ungodly percentage of their GDP is based on tourism, for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. They have you know some ancient sandstone, so you could never really see the real Egypt, which is pretty much a crumbling socialist mess um, and a very violent one these days. Ever since they toppled. Uh, Mubarak, was that his name? I believe so. Am I making that up? I don't know. We get in, he was still in power when we got to Egypt. So there are these massive banners of him just standing there looking tough like in a business suit, like, welcome to Egypt. Anyway, because tourism is so valuable to them, they have, we had a bus and in the bus with us at all times and everywhere we went was an armed bodyguard. He was dressed in a maroon suit. He chain-smoked Cleopatra cigarettes, which I actually looked into. Cleopatra cigarettes are, are like a, they're a Philip Morris thing. They're not, they're like made by Marlboro. They of might as well be Marlboro lights, but they're Cleopatra. So anyway, he's chain-smoking Cleopatra. He has a sidearm. There was a squad car in front of us, mm-hmm. in front of the bus, mm-hmm. and a squad car behind the bus everywhere we went. They were not interested in letting us do anything off the beaten path. So that gets really tedious after a while because there's only so much sandstone you can look at if you're like, I get it, I get it. So do you think they were there more for your protection or f- more, were they there more to take care take care of you in terms of protect you or take care of you in terms of uh, shepherd you? Probably both. I, the shepherding, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what it's like since Mubarak got toppled, but my experience was that if you look down the right alley at the right time out the bus window, you'd see a mountain of trash and a bunch of dogs around it and poor people. But the first night we're there, they put us on a boat on the Nile and there's a belly dancer and we're eating all this food and isn't, isn't Egypt great? And, and it, the fact that there was this facade, it's like, okay, that's ancient Egypt. That's thousands of years ago. Modern Egypt is built entirely around the revenue that they get from tourism. So it, it just... It was it was hard for me to truly enjoy Egypt because of that. I didn't feel like I was actually seeing the real people. And even when you get a tour guide, the tour guide, like the best job you can get in Egypt is a tour guide. It's kind of like going to Disneyland. 
See, I've never been to Disneyland. You don't. Well, I mean, an amusement park. You don't feel like what you're seeing is is real. It's something that has been assembled for your viewing pleasure. Right. Created something. Yeah. Artificial. Which is yeah. So I wasn't happy about that. But the fact that there were these armed guards everywhere, I was like, really? <laughs> okay. So so armed guards. No, I, I you know I. The fact that I've never felt like my life was in danger is probably just from sheer ignorance, um, more so than anything else, because we were in um, two days after the um, 2010 earthquake hit Haiti. Uh, we were in Port-au-Prince uh, helping with uh, relief efforts. We brought things in. You, from two the, days after it happened? Yeah, so it happened Tuesday. Uh, it happened on a Tuesday, I want to say, around 5 in the afternoon. I was at our house in Santo Domingo in my office and... I mean, it. You felt it. There was no question, and we were were hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And I ran from my office across the hall into our bedroom, and on the, which is on the second floor, looked out into the driveway, and it looked like someone had their hands on the on the back of uh, the truck, pushing it side to side because it was just like wow. wobbling. So that was Tuesday. Um, we immediately thought, oh, we have to do something. And then we thought, oh, yeah, duh, we don't speak Creole. Uh, we're not trained in disaster relief. You speak Spanish, right? You speak Spanish, right. And Haitians speak Creole. So, well, Haitians speak Wait, a lot so, of so languages. So Dominican Republic is right next to Haiti. Same island. And they speak completely different languages. Completely different languages. Really? Yeah. Huh, okay. Now, a lot of Haitians will speak... Spanish and English. Uh, there are a lot of Haitians who are multilingual. Dominicans have no interest in speaking Creole. Um, but we thought, you know, there's, we're going to go over there and we're going to be a part of the problem. We're going to be another person that needs water, needs food, and we, we're bringing no special skills. Is that something you consider before you tackle any project? If you're going to be more of a hindrance than a help, or if you're going to be looked at as a tourist i mean because that's because a lot of people are well i mean hurricane harvey just happened okay i'm sure there's a bunch of people going down there who probably have good intentions yeah who who are making it worse for the people who are actually affected that that's that's such a problem it it is a really huge problem and the number of phone calls we got and emails we got from people in the months that that followed the earthquake that said we just want to go help i'm like no (laughs) you 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 can you 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 don't have you're not equipped um you're just going to go down and be a drain on the on the resources that are there but um so we we resigned ourselves to say okay no we're we're not going to be able to do that and then it became evident the only way to get into haiti was going to be through the dominican republic because the airport's closed the ports are closed nothing you know at that point nothing was happening so the only way to get into the country was overland from the dr so we got contacted by um Convoy of Hope. They're a big relief organization. And they said, we need to get people in and you can help. And we said, okay, we have vehicles. Uh, we have drivers. We have, you know, we can, we can be logistics mm-hmm. essentially for the relief effort. And so that's what we did. Uh, we put together a convoy of vehicles uh, throughout the course of Wednesday and the first half of Thursday while people were flying in. And Thursday afternoon, we headed for the border. And um, just a little tech side note, this was 2010, so the iPhone was only three years old at that point. And looked like a brick. And it looked like a brick. 
but it saved the day because we had been in Haiti visiting the Child Hope program the previous October, so like three months before that or two months before that. And I had marked the country coordinator's residence using GPS coordinates in an in a app in, on my iPhone. So there's no cell service. Nobody in our convoy knows where we're going. And even the people who would have known where we're going didn't know because the roads were, there were so many roads impassable. Right. Oh, man. So I was able to... Even if you knew where to go. Yeah. So I was able to use my phone's GPS, which didn't need cell service. And I, so I had a, I, I downloaded the maps, the roadmaps for Haiti uh, to my phone and stored them locally before we left the DR. And so I had a, 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 this is where we are, and this is where we need to get, and these are the roads between here and there. Oh, that one's blocked. Well, don't worry. We can go up two more and turn right, and, and it worked. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. But, Haiti, you're talking about... Um, um, armed guards. Armed guards. So after, after the earthquake, um, the UN came in and took control um, governed Haiti, and there was a portion of Port-au-Prince, uh, Cite Soleil, that the UN they had a big gunfight, um, and then just said, "Okay, we're not going in. We're just we are avoiding uh, this this part of of Haiti." It was listed by the UN for a while as the most dangerous place on earth. I it. Didn't and you looked over, not knowing this, and went, "Yeah, let's go help some people." So, so this is—I uh, don't know—maybe uh, 2014. It was either 2014 or 2015. We go into Haiti, and we're looking for some of these stories, and we're wanting to promote what's going on. Well, Bill and Dorothy Smith, who oversaw Child Hope in in Haiti for almost three decades, uh, retired earlier this year bless their hearts. And Bill says, okay, we're going to go into Cite Soleil. I said, okay, great. We get to the edge of this part of town and he says, okay, we have to wait here. I said, well, why do we have to wait here? Well, we have to wait for somebody to show up. I said, okay, great. No problem. Whatever. Somebody shows up. Are you playing like Sudoku while you're waiting or something you know, like that? I can imagine you doing that too. You don't realize. Well, we find out later on the person we had to wait for was uh, part of the part of the gang, because Cite Soleil was run by a drug lord who had seen the work that Child Hope was doing in the area. We'd built a school, uh, doing micro loans, all this good stuff, and basically the drug lord said, "You know what? You are actually here to help people as opposed to just." make money off of um, the idea of helping them. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of, it's unfortunate, but a lot of aid organizations will go down, they'll do all of the, the photography and all of the, the videography and everything, and they'll go back and they'll raise millions of dollars, and the pennies of it will actually get to solving the problem. Man, that's, that's just a problem with nonprofit across the board, right? It's, it's, it's huge. Um, so Bill and Dorothy were recognized as, hey, you actually care. And so the, this drug lord um, said, Whenever, whatever you want to do in Cite Soleil, you have my protection. So Bill would get to the edge of the, of the, of the community and wait for a, you know, a 
gang member to show up who would escort him in. And then, and then eventually it got to the point where they said he had a, a white um, land, land cruiser, one of the old school, mm-hmm. you know, UN looking ones where people just knew. Did it still say UN on the side? No, no, no. It never said UN on the side. <laughs> that would have been a problem. But it did come straight from Toyota Gibraltar, which is where all those vehicles come from. There's oh, yeah? A, yeah, yeah. It was cool. Actually, uh, after the earthquake, um, Convoy of Hope bought seven of them, and we drove them. They came into the DR. We had to drive them across and deliver them for, for relief. Or anyhow, this drug lord said, okay, this vehicle... This is the vehicle of Bill Smith. Nobody touches this vehicle. <laughs> so then Bill could just go in and out. So we went into Cite Soleil with, I don't know, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 worth of camera equipment. And we were just walking around. <laughs> there was like three, when we, when we did that, there's like three guys with us who were all packing heat and who were cracking jokes and everything. And they just kind of were our guides and our escorts and we went at wherever we wanted did whatever we wanted and yeah that is crazy (laughs) yeah (laughs) we collect these stories and then you don't think about it until you're sitting on a podcast with robert kathan and you're like oh yeah that's that's one of those things where like there are people who who watch movies whether it's like i don't know like the hotel rwanda or Sicario or these things where like you know gang these these gang that's a reality very much so and we're we're from our comfortable position we can be like oh you know it's it's in the movies or oh you know whatever but when you actually get in that situation when you feel like you're you're being threatened when you when you see people that have a, here's a question did you actually consciously adopt a benign way of carrying yourself to make it seem like you weren't a threat because this is something I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Because people seem to get attacked on the street, get mugged if they look, if they walk like a victim, right, or if they walk like they're scared. But people that roll up and pretend that they own the place generally don't get messed with. And I remember when I was living in West Philly, I was like probably one block away from where it got sketchy. Like I was in this, I called it the green zone. It was right next to Drexel's campus and right before like broken glass on the streets, West Philly. And when I had to cross that line to go to like a brewery or a pizza place or wherever I wanted to go to get something, I would consciously hike my shoulders up and walk like I was ready to fight someone. And and I didn't realize I was doing it until I was getting a massage one day. And the massage therapist said, what is your shoulders are a mess. <laughs> and I was like, what? She goes, do you, do you constantly walk with your shoulders hiked up? And I'm like, yeah, in West Philly. She's like, well, that's that's a problem, Robert. <laughs> I come to Athens, I think I was talking to Yafet about this, and I came to Athens with that same posture sure, and then sure. realized that there really weren't any threats. You know, like it's, yeah. it's a college campus. So I'm wondering if um, your friends, I can't remember the names, what were you saying? Bill and Dorothy. Bill yeah. and Dorothy. Did they have an appearance of someone who was just a caregiver or someone who was nurturing? Because I know that like I see, when, every time I see you and Carrie, like you're some of the friendliest people I know and you're always very warm and open-hearted. So I never look at you and think, oh, any moment now he's going to wind up and punch me in the face. I've never had that feeling. It's not an insult, Matt, I promise. But I, I can imagine if you have some kind of gang running a place, if anyone comes in with some kind of posture that makes it look like they're tough, they, they would probably get shot, turned away. Well, it, you know, 
they might be a threat to the power structure that's in place. So yeah, I could see that. No, you know, in 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 Latin America, I think just I smile a lot. I'm a I, I think I'm a smiley kind of guy, and um, I'm not I'm not small in stature. I'm almost six foot. So um, you know, I don't I don't think that I'm a a tiny person looking to get to get picked on, but I smile a lot and talk to people. You know, that's a, that's an interesting thing, now that you mention it, because Dominicans um, would quite quite frequently have sort of a standoffish, sort of reserved um, demeanor about them. Like me. <laughs> and, uh, but if you, if you, you know, if you smile and you look them in the eyes and you, you know, say, hey, que lo que, you know, you say, what's going on? And you engage them, all of a sudden, it just in an instant melts away, and then you're your old friends. And so, yeah, there's probably something subconsciously that uh, we've embraced over the years to kind of adapt to Latin America. So it's a willingness to engage and just start with a friendly gesture, like you're, you know, you you just. Yeah, that seems like what it is. In in most in most incidences, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not true across the board. Um, there's probably parts of El Salvador where that would not get me very far. Right. <laughs> but um, but generally speaking, that goes a long ways. Mm-hmm. And being able to speak the language, and if anybody you know who knows Spanish, anybody who grew up speaking Spanish. I, I got to tell you, listening to me speak Spanish is probably really funny. It's probably hard to keep a straight face listening to me speak Spanish. So I've got that going for me, too. Okay, so you have the, if we're going to go with like a comedy film thing, you're, you're, you're the bumbling uh, tourist, right? I mean, Yeah, well, I tell you, I try not to look like a tourist. Uh, definitely that's impossible, try to, yeah. isn't it? Well, my skin color kind of gives it away, I guess. Yeah. I remember, I remember one of the coolest things uh, about when I, I went to India was my professor was from India. He was from Hyderabad. So he could speak Hindi, Urdu, English, Arabic, because he's Muslim. Wow. And I think he also speaks Japanese. Those are some, those are some tough languages. Multilingual. So anyway, when we went to India, we didn't do, well, we did a couple of the normal touristy things. But he would take us to the restaurants that he liked. He would take us to the part of the market that he thought was cool. Nice. We'd take the roads. He would tell the cab driver which way he wanted us to go so we could see certain things. And he had friends that we could go visit who would teach us things that you wouldn't get from a tourist agency. Mm-hmm. So even though we all look like tourists, I mean, come on. It's, it's, it was actually really funny. There was, there was one guy on the trip who was like six foot two, always wore a ball cap. Um, Greg Hamlin, if you're listening, how you doing, buddy? Um, and people would get pictures with him because he looked like some kind of American basketball star yeah. or something like that. The Rock or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then so you, people would come up and get pictures. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be looking at like, oh, my God, who is that? And then there were also there was this one woman on the trip um, who was very overweight, like extremely overweight. And little kids would come up and rub her belly. <laughs> and I actually asked her I said does that bother you she goes no it's adorable and I'm like okay as long as you're okay with it but the thing is is like you're at the Taj Mahal and the thing is like, you go to some place like the Taj Mahal and you feel like 
okay, uh, there's going to be a bunch of tourists here. And there are a bunch of tourists there, but most of the tourists are from other parts of India. Really? So there was a, a point where we're walking around the Taj Mahal where we were the only Americans, the only white people I saw. Huh. And, but it was just so funny. So you get these kids like asking to take pictures with the overweight woman and the tall, <laughs> tall, athletic looking guy. And then they would, so we thought this was really funny, but then we go to Rishikesh, which is on the Ganges. Mm-hmm where the economy is entirely based on like getting money from tourists and they ask to take a picture with you and then they put their, your hand, their hand in your pocket and try to pickpocket you. So we had to be really careful about like, okay, this is not safe. But, oh, that's a, that's a snake, even though snake charmers are illegal. Got to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, yeah, it, I was glad to have a really um, a tour guide who knew where we were going and knew the best places to hang out. So even though we saw the touristy things, he made sure we got the real Indian experience, which is really cool. But I mean, but, you're getting that because you're going to like depressed areas. You're going to places where there's a lot of poverty. You're going to, it can't be terribly flashy living most of the places you end up. No, but, and, and it's something I take for granted is that we've been to over, I think over a dozen um, countries now in, in Latin America. And 99.9% of the time, we're with someone who lives a North American, but who lives and has lived for years in that country. So we're going in with someone who knows the area, knows where to go, knows where not to go, and knows how to, to handle things. And that's that's a big perk that we have available to us. Has your body adapted to being in those kind of extreme conditions? Like, do you have to take certain medications when you go traveling or what? Well, <clears throat> what I have to do when I travel to Latin America, most, most, most places that we go, is I have to take... Um, wicking shirts i do not adapt to the heat well i sweat like crazy so i have to drink water like there's no tomorrow and i have to wear clothing that doesn't give that away so i've gone to uh standard my standard which you know it makes packing very easy because i just take columbia type uh golf shirts polo shirts that are the wicking synthetic material because so no cotton no gosh no Gosh, no, I could ring it out at 10 a.m. And then the um, the pants, the the really thin, lightweight hiking or walking, walking pants that the legs zip off. I've seen you wear those on set, too. The That's reason, probably really helpful. The reason I wear them is they're 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 comfy. They're easy to wash when you're traveling if you need to if you need to do laundry. But uh, also they just help you, you know. Act, you know, handle the heat. I don't like the heat. Me I don't neither. like the heat and the humidity. Dude, I do not like the heat. No. It's, a, it's a real problem with um, most of what I get myself into, unfortunately, because I always end up in really hot. Like I'm like, oh, I'm going to Denver on a mountain. It's 95 degrees every I day. I can't believe like, it was gotta, that warm. You know what's really weird about Denver? The differential between being in the sunlight and being in the shade. Mm. Because you're a mile above sea level, mm-hmm. the sunlight is really intense. But as soon as you get in the shade, the actual difference between shade and sunlight is way more extreme than where we are right now in Ohio. So what about at night? Did it cool down at night? The weather out there is bizarre. Mm-hmm. It definitely cooled down at night. It went from like being in the 70s at night, like low 70s, to being in the high 90s during the daytime. See, that's not cooling off that much. No, I mean, my landlady didn't have air conditioning. So oh, no. Oh, yes. 
I've got so many stories about that. I'm oh. not going to bore you with them right now. That's probably after we've had a couple cocktails and fair enough, some pizza later. But there was no air conditioning, so she would open the windows in the morning. No, she, she would open the windows at night, at night yeah. after the sunset with some fans and blow cool air through the house. And then in the morning, she would close all the windows to keep the cool air in. Sure. Sounds like a great idea. And it is a decent idea, except that you have dead air in a place that isn't pumping cool air in. So I spent a lot of time at Barnes & Noble. Wow. Spent a lot of time um, anywhere I could go that was not that house when I wasn't at work. It was it was brutal. So yeah, hot weather. Don't like it. That's one. Oh, you ever been to Duluth Trading Company? No. It's a like craftsman. It's almost like Carhartt, mm-hmm. but more specialized. And they design their gear, and then they have real craftsmen test it. So you can get this really durable stuff that has a lifetime guarantee. My brother-in-law got this pair of pants, and he's a carpenter. And he wears them every day. He's wearing them every day for two years, and they're still good. Oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable. So I went up there with my little brother, and I, I get anxiety attacks when I go in to go clothes shopping. <laughs> like, that's why you just don't do it. That's why That's why you get married and and say to your wife, go ahead. You can. Here's my size. Is that what you do? Oh, Carrie. Ask Carrie later about clothes shopping. She, okay. She doesn't, yeah. She loathes taking me clothes shopping. It's, I, there was one time where I had to, I had this hot date set up and I was taking this lady to um, a show at the Keswick Theater outside Philadelphia. It was Buddy Guy. You know Buddy Guy? Blues guitarist? No, he but he sounds a, like a great fellow. Oh, he's great. The guy's in like his 70s and he's shredding a guitar like Jimi Hendrix. It's amazing. And the Keswick's a pretty nice theater outside of Philly. And I realized that all I had were punk rock t-shirts and like dicky pants. And I, I'm like, not gonna work. I'm like, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. So I go to a Macy's and I go in and I, I mean, I, as soon as I walk in, the, the smell of the perfume just makes me freeze because I, I perfume, I can't stand perfume. It makes me, gives me a, a migraine. For the most part, I go in there and just turned around and walked out. I made a special trip and then panicked as soon as I got there. So then I found out that my my uh, sister's good friend, Emily, is really into men's fashion, but she's not a man. So she likes shopping for guys. So she took me shopping and she... You're a personal shopper. Right. We found some clothes that worked and I was dressed nicely for this particular occasion. It ended up being great. But so that, that was... Like six years ago, right? So all I've done since then is I buy, if I like a metal band and I go to their show, I buy a t-shirt. Buy a t-shirt, sure. Um, I get the solid Hanes black, gray, and white shirts in like a three-pack now and then. Classic. I get some Dickies. Yep. I wear Doc Martens. Yep. And I wear, I have work boots for when I'm going to be out working. So this is a very basic working man sort of thing. So on departure, I had one pair of jeans and remember that really humid day where we had to set up that massive oh silk, gosh, that massive yes. 12 by 12 silk? It was so hot, dear listener, um, that it oh, was 10 man. in the morning and we were all drenched. It, w- it was the humidity, the heat. It was disgusting. That was a bad day. And I'm wearing these jeans and I'm looking at them and I can't see straight and the air is thick and heavy and I'm already thirsty even though I've been chugging water and I just went, screw it. And I took my Leatherman out. Open the blade and cut my shorts, cut my jeans into cutoffs. I remember that. It turned into jorts immediately. 
and uh, I still wear them now and then, uh, kind of hanging out. Anyway, Duluth. So, so I go home. I took one week to do nothing this summer. Good. I the int- I, we did departure in May, June and July. I was in Denver mm-hmm. for the internship, and then in August for a week, I worked with my brother-in-law restoring windows, and then I took a week to just do nothing. That's good. And I realized, Matt, I haven't taken a week to do nothing. Since I was too 18. Oh my gosh. That's how long we're talking. So I'm sitting there and my little brother came in from LA. Uh, my sister came in. One of my sisters came in from, from Florida. And Christian, my, my younger brother, says, uh, what, are you, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. I need pants. And I don't feel like buying Dickies because although they're, or they last a long time, they're not breathable. So they're better for the wintertime. Like, I, I need some, like, collared shirts that I can can work in and can kind of be casual. But I don't want to look like I'm always about to jump into a mosh pit. Like, there's, you know, certain considerations you have to think about. And he goes, we're going to go to Duluth. I was like, what is that? He goes, King of Prussia Mall. We're going tomorrow. I'm like, okay, fine. So we go up to Duluth. And... We walk in the front door and there's this nice old lady saying, hi, gentlemen, have you been with us before? And we both go, no, first time. And she goes, okay, well, there's coffee in the back. There's some water. There's a nice little lounge area with Wi-Fi if you'd like to relax. We also have our clearance section in the back left-hand part of the store. And if you see any associates, they'll be happy to help you. And we both just go, are you, are you serious? So I'm, I'm already hyperventilating. I'm already like, Christian, I don't know if I can do this. It's gonna be rough. It's a good thing there was no perfume. And he goes exactly. And he goes, goes Robert, let's get a cup of coffee, let's check out the clearance section, then we'll find you some pants. So we did. We went to the back, got a cup of coffee, sat down, looked around, and then we went and and browsed their selection. Wow. And then we told I told a sales associate, I work on film sets. Um, it gets hot, but I don't want to. If I'm working outside, I don't want to risk poison ivy. What can I wear? And she points out three different types of pants I can wear. Moisture wicking or whatever. And then she shows me this pair of pants that has an extra crotch sewn into it. So you can do a full squat while wearing work pants. Oh. Yeah, there's like this extra piece of fabric. It's, huh. Anyway, it was amazing. So I talked to this woman, tell her what I want, and we, we try on a bunch of stuff. They have flannel shirts that aren't thick winter flannel. They're like thin fall. kind. Of, anyway... I highly recommend checking this place out. What was it? Duluth? D-U-L-U-T-H, Trading Company. Duluth Trading Company. And just the fact that the customer service was just, I could go have a cup of coffee in the back and not. And the other cool thing about the little customer service area or the, the lounge area is it had all these antique tools. And they had this little museum area set up of like, oh, this is what a workshop looked like back in this particular time. And all the advertising is like Paul Bunyan and like it's, for a working man, Matt, it is a great place to hang out. It sounds like a good place to go. And if my little brother, Christian, had not helped me, I probably <laughs> would have had a panic attack and run away. You would have been back here with nothing but dickies and jorts. Oh, man. Yeah. It was, dude. But that one week to not work, <sighs> I still have my mom around the, the yard or whatever, but I forgot what it was like to not have anything to do for a week. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. You need it. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. You like. need it. it. It was twelve years between one week without. Like, I, I take long weekends now and then, where it's like, okay, I'm going to take this this Friday off so I can get a little bit of extra work done. 
but it's always to do work. You know, it's never to actually relax. So yeah, the idea of a vacation and for you, I mean, you know, you go to South America to, to work. It's not, where would you go for vacation? Do you go on vacation? Um, well, you know, I mean, we'll go, we go see family. So we'll go up to Michigan, we'll go up to Northern Michigan and, um, you know, probably the last time that uh, I turned off, it's it's just harder now with cell phones and, I mean, not cell phones, but because we used to have cell phones and it wasn't bad, but um, cell phones that are also email and text and everything, it's harder to disconnect. Uh, the last great time that we had, like a, that I had like a week off was probably in... 2009 I think Carrie's parents rented a house in Florida and just kind of unplugged for a week and that was crazy yeah my mom has really bad internet That's so a, it's kind of like be a good thing so for me I was like well why even bother going on the internet so I just didn't I turned off my cell phone data I could wow. get texts I could get phone calls and just for a week I would read hmm. watch movies work around the yard, hang out. And it doesn't hurt that half my family's in the restaurant industry, so I ate like a king nice. every day. Nice. So I actually put on like four pounds in two weeks, which was... It's okay. No, it's great. Well, I mean, I, I'm trying to get my weight back up. It's tough. Oh, well, I'm trying to get mine back down. <laughs> so so tell me this, because I've, I've, I've long been a believer that, you know, even though even though I don't unplug anywhere nearly enough and it's been way too long um back when back when i i used to do that or used to be able to do that my experience was always like day one and two are kind of like you're still thinking about like your mind hasn't disengaged yet and it's not until about day three that you finally start to let go mm -hmm. of some of that you stop picking up your phone and going yeah Oh yeah, I don't have I don't have service, and it's like days four and five are when it gets really good, and you start to actually feel like you're on vacation. Mm -hmm. Was it that way? Yeah, it really was. Well, the other thing too is like if you can, I love taking naps, hmm. uh, and I don't take them. I was I was unable to take them in Denver. I just couldn't because the heat. Um, the, the people at Borders kept waking you up. The, yeah. <laughs> or my crazy landlady. Uh, the all, the other problem, too, was uh, acclimating to the climate. Like, I was there for two months, but I never... I only started feeling physically okay the last week I was there. I was nauseous for at least an hour a day. Hmm. Um, it, it was it was just... It was miserable. I, it, I, I jacked up my shoulder. I went to the gym and, like, messed up my shoulder. I had to recover from that. Um, as far as unplugging goes... I have certain things that I consider sacred. Like, okay, this time means no cell phone. One of those is the gym. I do not take my cell phone with me into the gym. It stays in the locker. I've got my headphones. You know, I got like a little iPod shuffle or whatever. And I keep that even though it's kind of pointless at this point just for that reason. No, it serves that a great purpose. This is for me to focus on this. It's not for me to take selfies in the mirror. It's not for me to check and see how my, how my biceps look. This is for me to, to exercise. Another one, if I have a reading assignment, I will turn the phone off, put it in my book bag, and I will read that assignment. Um, church, obviously. Uh, and there are other things where it's like, okay, if I'm going for a walk, if I need to clear my head, I leave the phone at home. 
it's kind of counterintuitive to to go for a walk to clear your head and take your phone with exactly. you. Exactly. So then it becomes okay. What is the? And then a lot of time, what I do is if I have something to do, I put the phone on airplane mode. Yeah. So I have chunks of That's time, cool. and people give me a hard time all the time. Like, oh, Robert, you never get back to me. My cousin who lives in Columbus goes, you are impossible to get a hold of on the phone. I'm like, this because I turn my phone off for five hours at a time. You know, like I only leave my phone on if I want to be distracted. If I, hmm. And if I'm editing, if I'm in the editing suite, that phone goes off unless I'm expecting a call. And then one thing I do with my laptop is like, I don't have any bookmarks for fun websites on my laptop. So I have like mail, um, I have a couple of filmmaking websites I go to or movie news. And then it's like, okay, if I'm working on something, I'll be, I can do my screenplay on Celtics, which is an internet site. And then if I start getting distracted, I'll put that aside and pick up a book I need to read. So that way, even my distraction is helpful because it's getting my mind on a different wavelength. But it's, it's tough, man. I mean, a lot of that is just, okay, I don't have news apps on my phone because I will be checking them constantly. So I check the news in the morning and at night. That's it. So it's like I had to, re- it's hard though, dude. You gotta discipline yourself. It's really difficult. That takes The discipline. gym one is the one that bothers me the most because the, pe- the amount of people just on the phone in the gym, when I need to get to that squat rack, I'm like, bro. And I will call them bros, Matt, because I don't care. When they're in my way of getting a workout in and their level of intensity does not nearly match what I'm trying to achieve. They're checking Facebook while you're waiting for the squat machine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just, uh, it's brutal. It's really, you know what else is really funny about the gym? I'm used to going to hardcore gyms. We've talked about this. Going to a campus recreational center, because we're at Ohio (laughs) University, and I keep forgetting this is a party school. Yeah. I keep forgetting you, you you probably get reminders every night. Well, now I do because I can hear them partying, yeah. but I forget it's a party school. And I forget that most of the people here are undergrads. Hmm. So I go to the gym and I'm like, "Do you even do you even lift, bro?" or like, "Do you even know how to squat?" And I'm looking I'm like, "Oh, they're kids." And I'm like, "Oh my god. They're kids." They're just way younger than me. They don't have the experience. And I keep wanting to correct people on their form. I keep wanting to tell people to put your weights away like I'm their like, babysitter. It gets bad sometimes. But I have to like really modulate. Or what's even worse is you go on Court Street, you know, and it's like, oh, I want to get a beer. Just kind of chill out. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't go there to Not chill out. You, Court go, Street. you go to the Cider House if you want to kind of relax. You know what I mean? Or you go to Jackie O's. It's a little bit classier. Go to but, the tap room. Which one? The Jackie O's tap room? Yeah. Near on the, the side of town that you used to live on. Yeah. Is that really a nice place to chill? Yeah? Yeah. I never went there when I lived there. Yeah. You know, it's. I went there for the first time for Huckleberry's rap party. And it's like there aren't undergrads. Nice. It's, it's like a grown-up place. <laughs> so bizarre. If I hear another Ed Sheeran song... I might commit Harakiri. It's that bad. I can't get away from that song. There's that Maramba, Maramba, Marimba. I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't want to know. Don't. It, it's it's okay. But one another cool place I like hanging out when it's not karaoke night is this the Smiling Skull Saloon. Because you can go in there and there's a picture of PBR for five bucks with your name on it. Nice. And there's a jukebox. Nice. I went in there with my little brother. He started playing all this old like '90s country and Johnny Cash and. He's trying PBR. Two pictures of PBR is ten bucks, and you're like, "Oh, I'm good." 
Have you been into Tony's? I haven't. Tony's is too loud. It, yeah. It's really loud. I have been there a couple times. But even that, you're, you're dealing with, that's you get spillover from the other kind of college bars. Mm-hmm. I'm True. still struck by the way the economy of a college town works. Like how many shops on, uh, on uh, Court Street would exist if it wasn't a college town? I think about that. Like the import house, like would that exist if it wasn't a college town? Probably not. Wendy's? Would the, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wendy's might. Uh, um, but you, then you go around like, what's that, what's that street that goes up the hill near Casa Nueva? I can't remember. Oh, that's perpendicular to court? Yeah. I think that's State Street, is that, actually. That is State Street. I think right. that is State Street. The funny thing about that street is I walk up there. I'm like, oh, these cool, like, kind of quirky places to hang out. And here we have this co-op, this Mexican food co-op. And, like, that's kind of cool. And you have all these cool little things. But I'm thinking the professors and the grad students are the ones maintaining that. And it just seems like I always feel like I'm in a bubble when I come back here. You are in a bubble. I know. And it's I don't like it. But also, I mean, but it's not bad to not have to worry about getting in a fight all the time, right? No, and it's not bad to be in a in a small town sometimes. Yeah. So Athens is 20,000, population, I don't know, roughly 20,000, and the university adds another 20,000. That's so crazy. How many students go to OU? Around 20,000. That's crazy. My undergrad, 1,000 students. Hmm. Yeah. That's pretty small. I know. Tiny. You knew everybody. You couldn't go to a party without seeing someone you knew. Yeah. Anyway, it, it is a good place to. I, I as stressful as this film program is, and as stressed out as I was last year, I now have enough distance from it to be like, oh, oh, that's what that was for. Not letting any of you OU faculty off the hook, if you happen to be listening. But uh, I will say that that experience of that like ridiculous boot camp year one, and then working on a feature film really solidified a lot of ideas and I think made me a lot more competent. Like I feel more confident going into a project now having done that work mm-hmm. which uh, is is invaluable. What what did you learn on departure craft-wise that you hadn't learned from watching YouTube videos and doing your own work? The importance of diffusion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean in diffusion in larger than 20 inch by 20 inch squares okay and one of the things that that really also stood out to me is um you we just we did not bounce light on diffusion there was no i don't i not once did we shoot a light up into the ceiling to bring up the you know just base light level of a room you're right no it didn't we didn't we didn't once do that, huh? Which is something you see happen all the time on um, other sets. I've seen some, you know, great DPs shoot light into a ceiling to bring up a, you know, the the base of a room, but on that set we did not. And kudos to John Valletta for for not doing that. I think he was much more purposeful about uh, about what he was doing, and he had the tools to be able to achieve what he wanted without without having to resort to that. And I like that. I, that's a challenge that I would present to myself is to, to use diffusion more and to bounce light less. 
We also have to thank uh, Ohio HD for the gear that we got. That was uh, it was fun to be able to work with, you know, screens and nice toys and flags that that weren't torn. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna see some some four buys, some four by frames come into the equipment room this year. Really? So a four by frame being a four foot by four foot frame of metal that you can attach to a stand and put in any position you want, and then to that frame you can attach fabric such as like a, a black fabric to create something that blocks light, uh, or what. You know, we want to use it for is attaching diffusion, attaching four foot by four foot sheets of different types of diffusion, things that you that you shoot the light through or let light come through, that soften it or wrap it or give it some different different quality that you only allow thesis students to use, right? <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, I think we will uh, the four by frames will be for whoever wants to check them out, and uh, it's going to be BYOD. Bring your own diffusion. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's a good idea. So if you can come up with the diffusion, then, uh, you know, this is this is my thought. This is what we're working on. I can't wait. It's going to be good. So I think we should probably wrap things up. We have a party to get to. Yeah, I think there might be free pizza waiting. <sighs> okay, so um, nonprofit you work for, if uh, listeners want to check it out, what what is it called again? How do you find it? Child Hope. It's at uh, childhopeonline.org. Is there anything else you'd like to say or promote or? You know, I, I just, again, I have to say um, expectations overall have been exceeded here at, uh, at Ohio University. It's a good program with good people. Um, I've definitely grown because of the program and especially because of the other students that are at the program. So students like you. Oh, Thank you very much. Matt. Yeah, absolutely. We should do this again. Absolutely. Because we have plenty more to talk about. Oh, we didn't even <laughs> talk about Final Cut. Ah, okay, we'll get to that next time. Very and good. as soon as we, as soon as I get the tour of the equipment room, uh, I'm going to have a bunch of questions, and it's going to be great. It'll be fun. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out childhopeonline.org to see what Matt and his wife Carrie are working on in South America. And we will see you next time.